series of Down the Hatch, the Swallowing Podcast. I'm Ianessa Humbert, and of course, I'm here with Alicia Vos. And the final segment is about the pharynx and UES, pharyngeal squeeze and upper esophageal sphincter opening. Now we combine these because they're so intimately related, and I hope by now that you guys understand that we have almost never talked about one component without talking about the next adjacent mm-hmm. event. When we were talking about laryngeal vestibule closure in the last episode, we couldn't help but talk about the tongue and the pharynx and the UES because they're so intimately related. So while we're breaking down these podcasts into relatively major events, these events are intimately related with other events, which is why we thought it made better sense to have a complete, more thorough discussion where we combine pharyngeal squeeze and shortening with upper esophageal sphincter. So. Let me just say this. We've in the past talked about swallowing have two swallowing having two major goals. One is airway protection, meaning keeping ingested materials out of your larynx and trachea, as well as making sure that the bolus efficiently moves into the esophagus and the stomach, and that is what we call bolus efficiency. Most people think about the pharynx and UES as having a primary role in bolus efficiency and forget about its role in airway protection. So we're gonna talk about those and we're gonna talk about what connects the two. Leash, what do you think? Yeah, I think that this is a natural season finale to yeah. our um, But wait, is it Breaking series? Bad or Game of Thrones? Because I wanna be Breaking Bad level, not Game of Thrones level, because Game of Thrones no. was garbage. It was awful. So I hope that the quality of this season finale is um, <laughs> up to par with the rest of the um, series episodes because yeah that was awful yeah and i just want to say in the last episode we talked about ues being one of the very important um events and i still hold to that despite everything which is if the i think of it this way when i think about the pharynx and the ues think about a toothpaste tube and pushing from the end of the toothpaste tube, toothpaste tube all the way to the opening is really important to go in that sequence, not just mashing the middle of the toothpaste tube because some goes in one direction and some goes in the other direction. But at the end of the day, if the cap is still on the toothpaste tube, all of that squeezing doesn't mean anything. So when you pull that together, the pharynx and ureas have to act in concert to chase the tail of the bolus down through an open passageway that closes right behind the bolus. So if I squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle, does that make me a swallowing hypocrite? <laughs> yes, I it am does actually. Definitely that person. Are you that person? I am. Do you know in your lifetime how actually, much toothpaste you've thrown away? You don't understand. We, there's already been an intervention in place because my husband only buys the toothpaste that's like in the like the there's a crest that you uh, yeah, it's upside with down. Pump. Yeah. With it's not a pump. Oh. It's like. Um, you, it's not one of the tubes that you can squeeze. It's just like, no matter where you squeeze it, the same amount comes out. You're that it's, bad, Alicia? I'm, I'm really disappointed bad. in you know, because you as a swallowologist, I would expect that you understand the dynamics and physiology of toothpaste. And the other thing is, we were not raised rich. Like, I know your story. Know. You know mine. So you should know <laughs> the importance of saving toothpaste. And do you remember the metal toothpaste tube days where you rolled it up? Yeah. Listen, what is wrong with you? I think that I just want to point out that... Um, Though, as a swallowologist, I can admit when I am wrong <laughs> and when I, I hey. and to correct my behavior, <laughs> and I, um, you know what, as much have a, a system in place yes. that I've gone through treatment, that <laughs> we have a new strategy involved, yeah. Yeah. And, corrective measures have been taken. Yes, uh, and so you know, as much time as we spend talking about people who need to change their thinking, I'm glad that this is now <laughs> transferred to your everyday toothpaste. Yeah extrication behavior so anyway uh what do you have to say about the pharynx let's start there <laughs> um do you want me to start yeah i do because I, okay, I, I don't know few, where you want to start i have a few fast facts that i want to share okay one is according to mri studies the duration of the stripping wave which by the way is when pharyngeal squeeze goes from superior to middle to inferior these are pharyngeal constrictors mm-hmm. that are c-shaped muscles that course from the posterior pharyngeal wall anteriorly mm-hmm. to the cheeks, 
for the superior, mm -hmm. anteriorly to the hyoid for the middle, and yep. anterior to the anteriorly to the larynx for the inferior pharyngeal constrictor. And yep. by that I mean the pharyngeal, the thyropharyngeus, where it courses to the thyroid cartilage, yep. and below that to the cricopharyngeus, where it courses to the cricoid cartilage, which is the primary muscle of the upper esophageal sphincter. Mm -hmm. Now, the stripping wave means that the brain stem stereotypes a movement where the contractions go from superior, middle to inferior, because we want in a real toothpaste squeezing world to go from the end of the toothpaste tube to the opening. Sure. Because we want the point of the pharynx is to squeeze the bolus, the tail of the bolus mm -hmm. down. So it's a sort of a cleaning, sweeping action to make sure that there's not a bunch of residue left behind. Yep. It is not a propulsive force like the tongue is because it has gravity on its side. We already have gravity helping us for any material to go down. Isn't it amazing how though that the this mechanism is so efficient that even if you're standing on your head, that it can, yeah. even in the absence, or even countering gravity, yeah. that it can efficiently or move supine. the bolus into the esophagus. Yeah. I just think that's so You know who did that study? Awesome. Julie Barkmeyer Kramer. We oh, mentioned really? her in the last podcast. She did a supine, an upside-down swallowing study. And really, swallowing is pretty darn efficient in healthy people oh, in yeah. terms of its ability to push the bolus through. Absolutely. So anyway, the point is, with pharyngeal stripping wave, with, with the pharynx, the goal is to chase the tail of the bolus down, to cleanly push the bolus down in terms of bolus efficiency. We've already talked about airway protection in the previous podcast. We can mm -hmm. touch on that as well. But it's about 400 milliseconds in duration in MRI studies. It is less than half a second on average. Mm -hmm. Now, that changes based on bolus consistency and volume, etc., but I just wanted to point out those fast facts. It's a stripping wave is you can see it on video fluoroscopy when you look at the posterior pharyngeal wall, sort of some people have a more obvious stripping wave, some people have a less obvious stripping wave. Mm -hmm. But the point is it goes from top to bottom. Sure. And that and just you can makes appreciate, sense. And you know, to in an AP view, you can appreciate the lateral the, walls, the lateral walls yeah. um, coming in together to create that. So you really have to like take these two 2D images, AP and lateral, and really construct that 3D image in your brain to put those both mm -hmm. together to mm -hmm. see the action of the those muscles. Yep. So that so that is one part of the pharynx that everybody's aware of. They're looking for the squeezing. They're looking for the bolus to be caught somewhere so they can blame the pharynx. I feel like we got to the thing that people think about a lot. The thing that people don't think about is pharyngeal shortening. Mm -hmm. So there are muscles that course horizontally. Those are your pharyngeal constrictors. Because these muscle fibers course horizontally, when they constrict, you expect that they would close horizontally and then close the lumen or the opening of the pharynx. But the longitudinal muscles, which we talked about in the last episode, which is stylopharyngeus, palatal, I mean, uh, palatal pharyngeus and salpingal pharyngeus, they course from the skull or the, pharynx, or, or the palate down to the larynx. AKA Leonardo DiCaprio, if you needed a <laughs> little reminder. A list actor who is not getting any Oscars, if you guys remember that from the last one. He's not clearly submental, which is clearly Brad Pitt. Yes. Uh, so, anyway, uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio of the pharynx are the longitudinal pharyngeal muscles. They bring the pharynx up. There's a paper by Jeff Palmer where he put little metal radio opaque markers on the posterior pharynx and the esophagus to show that they go up forward and back down in their trajectory in terms of movement during the swallow. This means that the, the pharynx doesn't just close off the pharynx from top to bottom, it also elevates, engulfs the bolus, gets behind it, then closes behind the tail of the bolus. This means that it's less likely to chop the bolus up in half as it's trying to move down. What it's doing is it's already appreciating that gravity is happening and just cleanly coming behind the bolus to sweep it down. Mm -hmm. It's a really, um, it's a really easy thing to visualize in video fluoroscopy when you're looking at the, um, um, in the lateral view when you're looking for the um, obliteration of the pharyngeal airspace at the height of the swallow that you're really looking it should be all grayed out if this system is working. Um, optimally, then you should really, at the height of the swallow, see all of that pharyngeal airspace be completely grayed out. Mm -hmm. And in the instance where um, pharyngeal constriction is not optimal, then that's where you have the opportunity to see maybe some 
residue, or you can even visualize some of the airspace. The pharyngeal constriction ratio is a great clinical tool to be able to objectively measure the amount of airspace that's lost. Um, and of course, this can um, be a huge contributor to bolus inefficiency and may be one of the reasons that, although albeit not the only reason, that uh, residue can exist. Yeah. And so you talked about residue, which means we have to go there. And a lot of people see residue in the pharynx and immediately blame the pharynx. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that there are a couple of things that the pharynx is not responsible for. So for instance, obviously if you have nasal regurgitation, we completely skip the velum and all this thing. I know, because it's like a... The velum doesn't need a whole podcast. Can we just quickly say that we want to prevent nasal regurgitation and have a closed chamber, which if you go to the podcast with Corinne, do you remember about yeah. um, about um, Dr. the big squeeze, Doctor Doctor Corinne Jones, and she we talk about pharyngeal, uh, we talk about manometry. She details the importance of the velum, which is we want mm-hmm. a closed chamber to help aid in bolus moving downward versus up, but we also want to prevent nasal regurgitation. Sure. There, we've done the velum. Yeah, now let's move on. I know. Yeah, <laughs> the poor velum is like the Marianne Williamson of the Democratic debate. Oh like, my oh, god! We're trying to get like, <laughs> like just two seconds. Like, can I just have a minute? So, I know. Like, we wait. We, we gave it its time. We so. gave it its time, and that's all you get. Uh, you should be glad you have a platform, okay, Bilam? Uh So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Your face right now is like, damn. Ooh, we're gonna get a we're gonna get a call from. I just feel like Marianne Williamson's PR, like uh, <laughs> she she might not even be anyone's vice president. But anyway, uh, so let's move on and let's think about the importance of the uh, shortening, which we already talked about. It needs to go up and engulf the bolus, but importantly, it also plays a role in airway protection with helping to pull down the epiglottis from its already horizontal position as per the tongue. So overall, if I had to say what's going on with the pharynx is it closes intrinsically, it closes the space within the pharynx, but it also elevates to get behind the tail of the bolus. Mm -hmm. And it's more of a sweeping, cleaning motion and while it comes down, it chases the tail of the bolus down, but it also pulls down the epiglottis. Now, in healthy people, you I've never seen airspace at the height of the swallow. And in critical thinking and dysphagia management, the very first talk that I give is about elucidating inconsistencies in dysphagia management. And in this anonymous survey about what speech pathologists thought was wrong with the swallow, in this particular swallow, at the height of the swallow, there was airspace in the pharynx. And a lot of people didn't really recognize that. You don't see that in healthy people. Mm-hmm. So part of the big thing to think about with, if you're trying to understand pharyngeal constriction is you need to see a lot of normal swallows yeah. to understand what's going on with the abnormal swallows. People are just looking for residue and saying, oh, there must have been a pharyngeal problem because it's stuck in the velum or the, yeah. or the piriform. Can we differentiate what the possibilities are if a bolus is stuck in the, in the velum? And then we'll talk about the piriform sign, the, not the velum, Lord have mercy. Oh my Sorry. God. In the molecula. We just said goodbye. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Miriam's going to be vice president after all. Uh, okay. If the bolus is stuck in the molecula, mm-hmm. what are the possible reasons why that could be the case? Oh, that's a good question. So I would say um, one of the reasons could be that there is poor epiglottic inversion due to a multitude of reasons that we talked about in the last podcast. Perhaps it's poor lingual um, posterior movement of the tongue. Perhaps it's poor uh, laryngeal elevation. Um, any of those two reasons could... And poor pharyngeal squeeze on the epiglottis. Sure, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, could result in literally just the inability of the... Um, uh, because the epiglottis is maintained in that upright position that contrast just happens to remain in Mm -hmm. the follicula so Mm -hmm. i would say that's one reason um it could be the fact that even though the epiglottis is fully inverting that the there is insufficient lingual propulsion so the base of the tongue is not making contact with the posterior pharyngeal wall that there's some airspace there that allows for some of that residue to maintain in the follicula it could be that the person is dry because of their medications and the physiology did its job it just coats yeah yeah so here's the thing when I think about molecular or piriform residue is, did the person feel it and double swallowed and take care of it? Right. If they took care of it, I don't care. Yeah. I've moved on with my life. <laughs> Crisis averted. Yes. Okay. So I agree with all those reasons for why there could be 
residue in the vollicula and obviously the only reason is not because of the pharynx yep with the piriform it's a little bit more pharynx driven mm -hmm. but it's also combined with the uas so obviously you need pharyngeal shortening generally in healthy people the piriforms go away in the middle of the swallow sure when they're sitting there at rest you have and i always like to say the piriforms are the only thing on your body that you want to be big and baggy <laughs> you know what i'm saying yeah. like the bigger and the baggier the better because you just want to have a holding bay mm -hmm. natural pockets in your body where they can just keep this bolus until it's ready to go mm -hmm. and if you have a delay having big baggy piriforms are amazing Yep. But in the height of the swallow, they all elevate. And this is the biggest thing that people don't understand. In that period where there's a delay and the bolus dumps into the airway because the swallow is late and the piriforms are completely full with the bolus, especially thin liquids. Right. Why are they dumping into the airway? Because of pharyngeal shortening, people. Right. It's the elevation and the closure of that pharynx together that means the the piriforms have to go away, go away and turn into a <laughs> tube. But if the ueus isn't opening properly and the larynx is enclosed laryngovestibular closure it will dump right into the airway it's almost like sweeping it right in there <laughs> so i wish y'all could have a visual of what's happening right now with my hands like Yunus's eyes are huge and like in my face and i feel my body slowly going further and further backwards <laughs> like i just told her that piriforms are not a thing and i'm getting lectured about it <laughs> well it's, it's like i'm the too close talker in seinfeld and my hands are like holding or like double holding d cups these... right now like it's like there are virtual boobs in front of me i'm like my hands are open for them like the piriforms okay so anyway um, the point is that pharyngeal shortening can be helpful until it dumps the bolus into the open airway. Can we leave with that? Yes. Okay. So I feel like we have exhausted the pharynx except for this point. And that is we didn't talk about why the bolus can actually be stuck in the piriform sinuses. Okay. One is that there's not a sufficient shortening, I think. Yep. And the other thing is the UES didn't open sufficiently to dump all that stuff in there. Exactly. It cut off and there was just the stuff left over. Maybe it's and maybe it's not that it didn't open sufficiently. So it, there's the amount that the UES opens, but also the, the timing. yeah, how long it stays open. Like sometimes the UES can close too soon, so the duration can be too short. And the material, you know, it's like, it's a kind of like dumping out your bags of Halloween candy. Like you're just trying to like get it all out as fast as possible. Um, okay. Can I just say my parents were hardcore reverends and I was not allowed to go out for Halloween. Oh, I know. No. I know. It's actually. That's I why I overdo it now. No. <laughs> well, now it really makes sense. And you didn't even hear what I was going to say. But I don't think you were deprived of the candy. You were deprived of the ability to dress up in costume and I go know. and when so when you said like that's why i overdo it now i was talking I, about costumes not oh, okay i was gonna say oh my god that really because fit? guess what else my parent my family's full of diabetes so i'm okay with the candy problem sure but i'm not okay with the lack of wigs that i got to experience yeah okay so anyway now that we've clearly worked on that i just want to point out that before we move to the uas we have to talk about strength of the pharynx and this whole myth that if there's residue anywhere you clearly weren't strong enough to sweep it out yeah thoughts feelings attitudes yeah i think that it's just so you, for some reason in in dysphagia uh report writing there's been all of these phrases that just get like said over and over and over again where if there's residue in the pharynx then it's like i know the next sentence is going to be um weak pharynx or due to reduced pharyngeal constriction therefore residue in yeah. molecular or piriform and it's just like it's just people see residue and then they just without even really investigating i think it's so easy to just say oh well because of x then z and you know i would also say in order to make a measure of strength you need two things one is a way to understand how much pressure is applied, how much force is applied, which we're not doing with either looking at muscle fibers via EMG or pressure on a catheter. If you want to refer back to um, our whole podcast on weakness, you can do that. That's one. And two, even if you had those tools to look at muscle fiber activity and pressure in the pharynx, you still need to know what the normal range is relative to this person. So when I say to people, before you throw out the strength thing, can you tell me what how to define weakness. What is a weak swallow? And everyone just gets stumped like, uh, uh, there's sure. residue. Hey, guess what? On video fluoroscopy, you could never make a comment about strength definitively. Sure. So then how do you, I guess I'll counter that with saying, because I agree with you, but then how do we justify exercises at all? 
Well, not exercise, not all exercise is resistive strength training. Sure. There are skilled exercises. There are sure. all kinds of exercise. There are sensory-based things. There are behavioral exercises to double swallow. Right. So when you say exercises, if you're talking about strength training, mm-hmm. I would argue that strength training fortunately, doesn't just get at the idea of resistance training to hopefully build muscle. It also gets at prolongation of timing, which we talked about in the last podcast, where an effortful swallow, as per the paper from Jackie Hind, indicates that it also prolongs timing of important things like laryngeal vestibule closure. So if you are end up getting somebody to do effortful swallows because you think that they're not driving a thick bolus down properly and they also happen to get longer laryngeal vestibule closure, that's amazing. My issue is not that the exercise might be a problem. My issue is that people definitively write down poor pharyngeal strength and they haven't measured it. I mean, you can say suspect XYZ, but in video fluoroscopy, you still don't know. Sure. I guess I would argue that I just think that we have been approaching dysphagia management all wrong for a long time because I think the way that when you think about motor control and you think about swallowing as a really intricate complex motor control system that strength isn't the way to go even if you knew nothing about swallowing disorders or clinical populations or anything if you just look at the system alone that I think exercises don't always make a lot of sense in this system in particular and I think a lot of it is more about the integration between the sensory and motor components of yeah, swallowing yeah. that um, that that can be impaired. There's a mismatch between the integration that's happening at the level of the brainstem or at the level of the cortex. I mean, look, most people that have swallowing impairments are due to stroke. Yeah. Right. Where I where I do see exercises really um, a population that it really does make sense. When you is, say exercise, you mean strength exercise. I mean like, yeah, real strength exercises mm-hmm. um, is in the head and neck cancer population mm-hmm. where they use exercises prophylactically yeah. to help um, maintain function as they're going through well, they know chemotherapy atrophy, atrophy is and fibrosis be a, yeah, and sure. things like that. Yeah. I think that that is totally appropriate. But it, it's just, this is more of a hypothetical. Yeah. I'm not saying that this is in my exact opinions, but... I just think that there's an overemphasis in... They're not your exact opinions, they're your approximate opinions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm just kind of like throwing this out there. It's no, like, I'm not it. making a hardcore statement, like, this is what I believe is my platform. I'm just saying, let's just think about this for a second, in that I think that potentially in our field, we just have an overemphasis on making our system like it's a PT model where yep. we need to do all these hardcore strengthening exercises where it's actually the coordination that's so... Mm-hmm often what's primarily impaired and we just need to maybe approach dysphagia management very differently than we have in the past i i'm the person who's rallying i mean i'm not in her face right now because i agree so i'm clearly like resting and sitting back but i just want to say that you're right in the rehab world we've been lumped with ot and pt i'm not saying it's a problem but what we do is we see these people in the pt clinic or in the gym doing strength training you're like well what about me maybe yeah. i can do that with the tongue and get numbers picturing that... like squat and... cleans with the tongue like... but you know it's not like that but you can see numbers with these things you get mm-hmm. objective numbers but they don't translate to swallowing necessarily right so i agree with you 100 i would also add that our system is probably much more related to things like ocular movements sure. and you know basic things like speech speech Um, You know, there are some things where your postural muscles, there are things that you do that you've been doing since you were in your mother's womb just to maintain life. And if our body, if our body had to use a hundred percent of its strength to just swallow breakfast, we would, there would be no obesity on the planet because we'd be too tired for lunch and dinner. So the idea that the pharynx has to exert all this extra force, a hundred percent of everything it can give for every swallow and clearly you're weak is completely what you're saying about taking the PT model of strength where you do need more strength to walk than to just sit down. I get that. And when people are really ill, even if you have the, the flu, going up the stairs is the most onerous thing you've ever done because you're just, you're just weak, right? But, but when it comes to eating, it's a thing that you need far less strength to do. Sure. Just to swallow your own saliva, which we do about a liter a day. Yep. We would all be foaming at the mouth constantly and drooling if we couldn't manage our own saliva. So clearly we yep. need less strength and more coordination. Well, even, I mean, continue on the PT argument. I love hearing the statistics from um, some of my colleagues uh, that I work with that talk about that most people experience falls when they're in an environment where there's um 
when they're overground walking in a complicated environment where there's um, hills and where there's like stuff they have to step over or when they're in the bathroom. Most falls happen in the bathroom because when you walk into the bathroom, you have to kind of walk forward and then walk backward to like shut the door and all of the strength in the world isn't going to help that. That's a skill. That's a, um, you're incorporating um, coordination and balance Balance. and all these things together and um and cognition and cognition of course so you know I guess I think of swallowing more like ballet dancing where Mm -hmm. um if somebody suffers an injury with a ballet dancer or they are having you know they're, they're trying to rehab back to their optimal performance the strength training is going to make them worse so you're saying it's more Pilates and less CrossFit. It's about doing yeah. many reps and not two or three max effort reps where you just do the most you can ever do in one rep, like Olympic lifting, where you get the heaviest weight up, throw it over your head and down. It's about being able to sustain this for sure. an hour. I mean, but I would say even like, so it, it, the CrossFit thing is interesting because you are, it does require strength, but what I've learned in CrossFit is that when you get to a certain point, it's getting stronger doesn't help you lift a heavier weight. It's your technique yeah. that makes you lift well, a heavier weight. Well, it's never weight. the case that there's no technique or form in any strength training. It's just the goal of the movement. In sure. strength training, the goal of the movement is to do more with weight. And so yep. the movements tend to be less um, complicated. Sure. Whereas in other movements where you're doing tiny, frequent movements, it's about getting many of them in because you have to swallow many times for one meal. Sure, sure. Right? So I would argue that, um, again, I don't know why I'm arguing. I would suggest or posit <laughs> that uh, with the pharynx, residue is not a direct indication of strength, which you have not measured. Right. And it has more to do with perhaps range of movement and timing uh, than it has to do, and sensation, meaning, yeah, there's a little leftover and I'm gonna do a cleanup swallow after. Yeah. Immediately after, and it's gonna go fine when I do it. Sure, sure. All of those components, sensation, range of motion, and timing slash coordination are far more important than planal strength, especially with a thin liquid that is going to fall down anyway. Yeah. That's what the, our whole supposed concern with premature spillage is, that it's going to go down there and the pharynx isn't ready. Well, clearly the pharynx is not necessary because it already hit the piriform sinus right. before the person even swallowed. Sure, sure. So let's talk about how the UES opens. Okay. Let's, let's transition. Can I, I we just, just got in the soapbox for I know, a I know. Minute. We started talking about all kinds of CrossFits and things, which is probably even less relevant to the UES than um, yeah. anything else because... We, I've never heard someone attribute a strength component to the UES. I know. Have you? I don't think so. Uh, no, like I, I've actually never heard somebody say, I want the UES to get stronger. Or be more skilled in its opening. I think people recognize the UES is far more in their mind in the reflexive, non-behavioral thing because then a lot of other things, sure. even though... The Corilla study from 1992 indicates that a Mendelssohn prolongs UES opening by 100 milliseconds. Yeah. So, and they attribute that more so to traction from the larynx than from relaxation of the vagus because they haven't measured it. Right. So let me just break down the basic components and I'll let Alicia jump in with other things, which is, let's just talk about the basic mechanism. Obviously, the UES in oral pharyngeal swallowing it's like it's like the dividing line between speech sure. pathology and other fields almost, right? And it's right? called many different things. So <laughs> yep. it's called the upper esophageal sphincter. It's called the PES or the pharyngoesophageal segment. segment. Mm-hmm. And it's also called... Um, I don't know about Something else. Uh, Brahman Jones used to call it something different. Huh. I don't know. Uh, she would call it the UES, PES... Uh, I'll think of it. Okay. Well, either way, it's not an actual sphincter. Because a sphincter means that all the muscle fibers are are uh, circular and ring shaped, shaped, and when they close, they close uh, sequentially to close a lumen and relax means open, like your anus is that, or your lower esophageal sphincter sure. is actually a sphincter. The reason it's not a sphincter and really a segment is because the anterior component of it is the is, a tri- is the uh, cricoid, and as a result, it's not possible for it to be a complete ring of muscle because part of it is the cricoid. Right. Uh, according to Peter Belofsky's work, it's actually kidney-shaped mm-hmm. and not a circle or a ring of muscle. However, because we still say, did you Xerox it 
instead of did you copy it or can I get a Kleenex instead of can I get some tissue? Right. It has sphincter attached to it even though it's not right. an actual anatomical sphincter. As a result, I'm going to say you a yes for the rest of this podcast because I have had enough wine that I can't say P-E-S. Yes. Now, so the two primary components of upper esophageal sphincter opening are the fo- as follows. One is you have to have relaxation of the nerves that go to the UES to inhibit it during the period of the swallow, which means if you're doing what we call electromyography, which is EMG, and you have a needle in the muscle and you're measuring its electrical activity, usually you can turn the audio up and you'll hear this buzzing noise, this loud staticky noise when the muscle is active and then it's quiescence or silence when it's not active. When you put an electrode in the cricopharyngeus, which is the primary muscle of the upper esophageal sphincter, when the person is just sitting there and not swallowing, you hear bzzz, all this activity. And that's because it's chronically active. Tonically active. Tonic and chronically. It's (laughs) tonically and chronically active when the person's not swallowing. That means it's closed when you're not swallowing. Why? We want to keep air out out of the esophagus and ingested contents out of the pharynx Mm -hmm. so it stays closed that's why you hear a burp sound because the air is vibrated against that closed tissue and just like phonation or the fart sounds my kids make when they put their hand under their armpit you have air relative to tissues and you get a sound Mm -hmm. now pull those together and when you swallow on emg there's a quiet period during a swallow and you get the noise again that Mm -hmm. tells us that that nerve has been inhibited during the swallow and that's programmed by the brainstem. So that's one part, inhibit the nerve that is keeping this muscle active just during the swallow and then re-engage immediately after the swallow, close right behind the bolus. Yep. The other component is during that period of relaxation, we want to stretch the the already relaxed UES open further, and that's through laryngeal elevation. We already mentioned the primary muscle of the UES is the cricopharyngeus. That means the cricoid is part of this behavior. And as it elevates, it helps to stretch further the UES open. We call that traction on the UES. Yes. So those are the two primary things. Some people have an argument about the bolus playing a role, but as Alicia mentioned in the previous podcast with the laryngeal vestibule closure, it is possible to have laryngeal vestibule closure with a saliva swallow in the same way that you get UES opening with a saliva swallow. The duration of the opening slash closure isn't the same with a saliva swallow versus a 30 ml swallow, but it is still, uh, uh, the behavior still happens. Right. Your turn. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a point that I think we need to emphasize, which is that um, there is an overemphasis on the hyoid bone that is responsible for the traction on the UES, and I think that's where it gets a little complicated when people are using a Mendelssohn to try to increase UES opening when when they're doing a Mendelssohn, they're focusing their um, attention towards the hyoid bone and how much the hyoid bone is moving during the Mendelssohn. And um, what we've already stated a few times is just that it's really not the traction from the hyoid bone, it's the traction from the cricoid cartilage that's providing that extra traction on the UES, yeah. not the hyoid bone. And we know that because of um, you know, as, as Bill Pearson had mentioned to us that the thyrohyoid muscle isn't the muscle fibers. When you look at the length of the muscle, muscle fibers, they don't actually, um, provide enough force to even physically be able to open the UES through traction of the hyoid bone. So it really is. The well, they pull the, be... those muscles pull the highway down. Exactly. So it's... even if it pulled it down at a greater force, it's the opposite direction. Sure, sure. Yeah. But I mean, it is approximating the highway and the larynx, but even that, that amount of approximation isn't enough. It's really the, um, the cricoid cartilage. So, so what you're saying is I have a highway bone to pick yep. and that particular highway bone is, I think that where we're getting all this, fr- this, is from a misreading of a paper by Peter Krillis in 1992, where he stated, where he measured three things. One is hyoid <coughs> excursion and timing, mm-hmm. laryngeal excursion and timing, and UES opening and timing, the amount of UES opening and the timing of UES opening. He reports in healthy people who swallowed, I think, 1 ml, 10 ml, with and without a Mendelssohn, so four different conditions, 1 ml, 10 ml, 1 ml with the Mendelssohn, 10 ml with the Mendelssohn, 
to understand not only the role of bolus volume, but also the role of bolus volume and a Mendelssohn maneuver. If you're not familiar, a Mendelssohn maneuver requires you to prolong hyolaryngeal elevation in the, at the height of the swallow. And they were trying to understand whether or not volume and or Mendelssohn maneuver prolongs UES opening. And what they did find is with a Mendelssohn maneuver and with a larger bolus, you can prolong UES opening. But it was the Mendelssohn maneuver discussion that I think got people to take the information just for the hyoid and skip the larynx. So here's what happens. In the paper, if I recall correctly, there's a paragraph about the fact that the hyoid bone at its height when prolonged in elevation corresponded to a prolongation in UES opening duration. Likewise, the next paragraph says the same thing about the larynx. It's like people stopped reading at the hyoid and just didn't move down to the larynx. But here's the interesting thing about a normal swallow. I'm not arguing that the hyoid duration and extent of elevation did not correspond to a equally increasing duration and mm -hmm. extent of UAS opening. I'm just saying that it doesn't mean that it caused it. Sure. These two things happened at the same time. They're correlated. Sure. But they're not doesn't mean that the hyoid is responsible sure. for UAS opening. Well it's like saying that Anatomically it doesn't make sense. Every time that the UES opens, the velum closes. The exactly. velum must close the UES. Yeah. It doesn't make and any sense. This is my point. If they also happen to measure pharyngeal duration, velar duration, lip seal sure. duration, lingual duration, they might all correspond with UES duration because in healthy people, things come to a peak at the same time and right. then decrease at the same time. So everything is correlated, doesn't mean it's causing it. And so sure. if you understand the physiology, you'd say, that's great, but the cricopharyngeus is attached to the lowest part of the larynx, the farthest part from the highway bone on the larynx. So it doesn't mean that it causes it. It right. means it's correlated because they, in healthy people, they don't have a perfect one-to-one -one relationship, oh but they're pretty Everything darn close. Everything happens at the same time. I know, in like, healthy people. In, in healthy, healthy people. people. Like, we have to be very cautious of correlation studies and swallowing. I would also, everything is happening at the I would same also time. argue that I'm not 100% sure that 100 milliseconds of increase in UES opening is clinically relevant if we don't also have an increase in amount of opening. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying that wasn't statistically significant, mm -hmm. that there was an equal amount of inc of increase in opening and timing across all the people. That's how you get statistical significance. Right. Everybody had a incremental increase together. Like yep. Everyone takes one step forward. You're getting in less than 0.05. However, is that clinically significant? Right. Is it worth having someone go home with a packet of Mendelssohn? Um, paperwork that they have to do that may or may not have anything to do with their sure. UES, not necessarily, right. especially if their issue isn't traction in the first place. If their issue has nothing to do with the larynx and has everything to do with inhibition of the vagus, I don't think doing a Mendelssohn as hard, so hard is going to make a difference. Sure. I agree. Um, I think that what's difficult, and I think you know, as this is our final, uh, the final season finale, sorry, I think that this is an overriding theme with a lot of these things is that part of the problem is there's a lot of components of swallowing and we just don't have a lot of directed therapies that target a lot of these components. So this is why you see a lot of people doing Mendelssohn's for UES opening and you see these strategies is because there's just not a lot that we can do. Mm -hmm. And I would argue maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay mm -hmm. because maybe part of the problem is not that we need to be isolating these little components and doing exercises. Maybe part of the problem is we just need them to be practicing and swallowing more. Good point. And you know what? Okay, can we just say this? Before we get to that idea of, is swallowing best treatment for swallowing. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that, so we've gone through the pharynx and the UES. Can we just say which technique we can use to see them both? I think we both clearly will mm -hmm. indicate that in order to see the swallow during the swallow, fees is going to have whiteout in a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there aren't patients who don't have pharyngeal squeeze but do have UAS open. You can't see the bolus escape. Mm -hmm. It's just far less likely. Mm -hmm. So... Overall, we have been saying that in order to see the swallow during the swallow and not see wide out, you need video fluoroscopy. Sure. Okay, cool. The the caveat is a lot of times it, in, with fees in patients that are very disordered, 
you can appreciate like if somebody has no parental constriction yeah. you can certainly absolutely appreciate that in fees because it's not there and you're mm-hmm. not getting a white yeah. out period mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. there is that lack of obliteration but you're not seeing a, a stripping wave sure right because it's not there right Exactly. So, so you anyway. can't see extent of UA open. You just see the bolus disappear a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Okay, cool. So um, now we can move on to this last concept, which is a lot of people saying, so how do I treat these things? Mm-hmm. So if we talk about the pharynx, we already talked about this whole idea of strength and coordination. And I wish I could tell everybody, hey, guys, this is the thing to do for the pharynx. But what everybody pretty much does is a mendel's, is not, I saw an effortful swallow. Mm-hmm. If there is to do, just do an effortful. I'm not sure that that is good or bad because Mm -hmm. isn't it Katrina Steele who has a paper about your directions determine whether you get more tongue versus pharynx? Uh, I think so. I mean, when in doubt, you can pretty much always say it's Katrina Steele's paper. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Because she's so prolific. Yeah. Um, So the the idea is that the the instructions you give the patient determine whether you get more tongue or more pharyngeal movement when they do the effortful. Katrina definitely talked about it in, I think, in in our very first series on this that concept okay so but then again it still points to the idea that more force is necessary and i'd love to tell you that behaviorally speech pathologists play an important role in ues opening but i still think people get more bang for their buck by seeing ent slash gi in terms of botox dilatation etc well it depends on the etiology of the impairment right so if you have somebody that um has a stricture um then that's not in our scope of practice. Sure. You need to refer out. If you but have, if they don't have inhibition. Sure. Yeah. I don't know how that's exactly in our scope of practice either. Well, it's not. I mean, that's where you need to refer out to specialists. How, that are okay, able let me to... ask you this. How many times have you seen a patient where their issue was laryngeal elevation for the UES? Not as commonly. That's my point. It, I'm not saying the larynx doesn't play a role. Sure. But it can't stretch open a UES that's not relaxed. And in fact, a really tight UES can potentially tether the larynx. But I also feel like, I guess I say that because it's so rare that I would target the larynx. I think to me when it comes to UES, because the UES is so dependent on sensory information, that for me when I see somebody that has a UES impairment, a lot of times it's that I, say they've had a stroke, right? And they're closing their UES too early or Mm -hmm. it's not opening wide enough. Maybe it's because they are opening their UES wide enough for a 5 ml bolus when it's really a 30 ml bolus. Like, this is a sensory integration issue. Yes. So let me, can I just say a point about that? Because you just reminded me of the thing I was going to say before, which is, of all the swallowing events we've talked about, the UES duration of opening is the most responsive to bolus volume changes. Sure. That means that across the studies in healthy individuals where they've tested more than one volume type, in every single study, to my knowledge, unless mm-hmm. there have been more since I've looked, in every study where they've tested increasing volume amounts, they've always found increasing durations of UES opening. Meaning that if they tested a 3ml, a 10ml, a 20ml, the UES would be open longer for the 10ml and even longer for the 20ml. Mm-hmm. That means that sensory integration is key for the UES in a way that is not so much the case for laryngeal vestibule closure, sure. swallow onset it's, time, pharyngeal squeeze. And I think that's because the UES acts, I, my analogy is like the sensor on the automatic sliding glass doors yeah. in the grocery store. It has to recognize that 20 people are coming through right Exactly. Now. So if you're going through the sliding glass doors that are automating opening sliding glass doors for a grocery store, like Target or something, you just walk in and it just opens for you. If it's just you, it opens just before you and closes right behind you. If it's you and a troop of 20 of your family members all in a line, it stays open the whole time because the sensor keeps seeing people. It doesn't want to chop you guys in half. And where's the sensor in this case? It's likely in the oral cavity to say, this is a big bolus. Mm -hmm. Stay open longer. Do not chop the bolus in half and leave it sitting in my big baggy piriforms Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and dumping into my larynx and requiring two swallows. Be efficient and open a little like a half a second longer, please. Right. Yeah, so I think that, I guess, you know, when you ask that question about the larynx and targeting it, it's, it's that, you know, I just find that it's so much more important that after, we'll say a stroke, for example, that the system needs to be recalibrated to understand those rules again. Yeah. And you can only do that by providing sensory information. And what you're saying right now, if I understand it, is 
when you say the system needs to be recalibrated, it, it needs experience with what it used to be able to do to sure. know what to do in the future. And it needs error. It, it needs, needs error. So true. So, you, so what we're talking about right now, guys, is the idea that taking away swallowing experiences, especially the difficult ones that they need practice with, does not necessarily help a patient. It perhaps inhibits them. It's like atrophy because the person doesn't get to use the muscle because they never get to walk. Sure. So her argument is sensory motor integration, tying the sensation to an appropriate motor response only happens when there's sensation in our field. Sensation happens by having a varied amount of boluses. Mm -hmm. And if you only get three or four boluses you can manage, how are you ever going to practice on the boluses you can't manage? Right. If you're only consuming honey thick liquids, how do you know what to do with thin liquids? You don't even get the opportunity to recalibrate during the period of time and it's most important right after the injury. You need to be able to use spontaneous recovery as your tool. This is when the brain is plastic. There's a lot of BDNF and there's a lot of opportunity for um, reprogramming and to be able to recalibrate. And if you take that away, you are doing the worst thing for your patient humanly possible. Okay, hyper recently graduated doctoral student can you explain bdnf because they're like is that like a type of bolus i should know about you need to explain that so bdnf is highly critical for the ability what does it stand for um brain derived neurotrophic factor so it is highly responsible it's what's highly abundant in the brain when children are young and going through development and learning constantly. It's what helps with our formation of new memories. It's really important for overall um, plasticity. So um, there are certain periods when um, it is... You're primed for it. You're primed for it and you have the ability, you have an abundance of BDNF to be able to capitalize on plasticity and once that goes away, it's plasticity is very, very difficult. It's dampened. No matter how hard you try. Mm -hmm. So it's during this acute phase that the body needs as much exposure and, you're and talking practice about like as possible. Post stroke or post TBI when the post brain is the brain is in that um uh what do you call it? Um so obvious spontaneous recovery period exactly. where BDNF is high because the system wants to fix itself. Exactly. And what you're saying is the system wants to fix itself, but it needs some experiences to know what to do with. And, and that is the phase where we take boluses away yep. from people. Yep. And that's when the system needs a bolus to say, I'm trying to fix myself. Give me an experience to work with. Exactly. Like, and who's I'm ready for it. I'm and ready who's for responsible it. for it? Speech pathologists are responsible sure. for taking away an opportunity to learn at a critical learning period. To me, it's like... A speech pathologist really like realizing a child is in early intervention and putting them in a white room for three months yeah. where they have no interaction with people. Exactly. Exactly. So these concepts are really critical and I think that that's, you know, when it comes, we're really talking about therapy. To me, it's about timing and exposure and experience and error reduction and being able to capitalize on all of those things to allow the system to do what it does best, which is figure itself out. And can I just say that when we talk about this, we've sort of transitioned to this idea of what can you do with the swallowing physiology series in terms of treatment? Because ultimately people are like, well, tell me what to do at the end of the day. The thing that speech pathologists have at their fingertips that they have control of is what boluses people get to experience, mm -hmm. what boluses people get to practice with. They don't think of it as practice and think of right. it as safety. And I don't want to take, I want to take away an opportunity for you fail as opposed to give you opportunity to manage something that you may fail or succeed with, but we recognize its role in your plastic changes and your, your neuroplasticity in your ability yeah. to make the connection for hardware, software, and experience. Your hardware is just your structures. Do you have the structures? Your right. software is your connection between your CNS and your PNS to say, hey, I'm gonna program this movement. Okay, do that movement. But the experience is, how do you let these two air, the hardware and software do something with? Yep. Are they swallowing a thin liquid? Are they swallowing while distracted? Like what's going on? Right. And it's that area of the three areas that are really important that speech pathologists have most control over. Yep. We have almost no control over the hardware. If an yep. ENT goes in there and cuts out the epiglottis, that has nothing sure. to do with us. Right. We have very little control over the connections, the actual connections between the CNS and the PNS. We have almost, unfortunately, way too much control over what boluses people get to take. And we don't realize yep. that the, that's the third pillar of the stool. Yep. 
Exactly. So, preach. <laughs> so if I had to summarize, <laughs> I would argue that the pharynx and the UES could be lumped together because they're so intimately related. Um, I would argue that if you want to go back and listen to us ramble about the toothpaste, toothpaste, do your thing. But the idea is one is movement to clean sweep the bolus down and the other one is just opening the gate so it can go through. But importantly, that gate opening happens because inhibition of the nerve and traction of the larynx and it is immediately and really intimately related to the size of the bolus or the volume of the bolus. So it opens long enough but not so long that now air is going through into the esophagus sure. yep and all of that together that sort of tube of information that is the sometimes the ues is the dividing line between speech pathology and gi but the ues doesn't know it yep. we just divided our practice into ues and above and ues and below and i know some slps do esophageal stuff and that's fine i'm not arguing that point at all but the point is they're so intimately related, you almost can't separate the pharynx from the UES. Yeah, no, it's true. It's very true. And finally, speech pathologists. In this swallowing physiology th- series, it's not just knowing how, this, how the system works. It's knowing your role in the system, which is give the system the opportunity to experience as many boluses as mm-hmm. possible so it knows what to do with it. When Alicia was talking and about how error, to compensate, we yeah, talked about when the Alicia failsafe. was talking about error, the idea is if you don't know what an error is, you also don't know how to fix it. Mm-hmm. If the person never gets to aspirate, you never get to see if they get to clear it or if they know what to do with it or protect it before it even happens. Mm-hmm. So we don't give them errors, so they also don't know how to manage them or how to fix them. And that is like being a helicopter parent. We don't want any trouble to ever come to our kid because we don't trust that they can actually manage life. And it's the same thing with a swallow. True that. All right, so this this concludes our swallowing physiology series. I feel like we just like screamed at a bunch of people who- This has been a long time coming. We've been wanting to do this series for a long time. I think in closing this, I think it would be really interesting. I would I would really love to hear from people who listen to this podcast, which if you've made it to this episode, holy, you've really had to listen to us rant a lot. But I'd love to hear comments about what, what do people want to know more about? Like yeah. maybe an aspect of... I think we really like talking about the physiology and I think that that's a direction that we're interested in going and digging deeper on. But I'd love to hear like what what aspects of swallowing um, are you less familiar with or what would you like to hear expanded upon? Um, we know if people give suggestions that they made it to the end of this podcast. <laughs> I know, right? We're going to get one suggestion of like a major fan who's like, so I want to know, it's going to be advice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we um, love you, Ed. All right. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening to the series. If you have, as Alicia said, an overarching summary of what you learned or what you felt like we didn't get around to um, because there was too much Cabernet Sauvignon in the house, that's cool. We're happy Mm -hmm. to follow up on that. Happy swallowing, people.